Hello, welcome to A Language I Love Is, a podcast all about languages, linguistics, and love. I'm Danny, your audio host, and for this episode, we're returning to the Baltic region, there to join Francis Young and enjoy his enthusiasm for Lithuanian. Francis is a well-known historian with a specialism in and long-term love for the Lithuanian people and their history. That passion is very clear to hear, and it's a delight to have him on the show. Dr. Francis Young will be known to many people online and in the real world as a historian of religion and belief. He is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, and among his many talents and many areas of expertise, he has a particular focus on the Baltic region of Europe, in terms of its languages, its religions, its cultures, and its complicated history. So I think we've got a lot that we can explore and dive into today. Francis, how are you? How are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you, Danny, and I'm really looking forward to speaking to you about Lithuanian. Excellent, excellent. So Lithuanian is the language that you love, that you have chosen today, and I think there's a lot that we can unpack with regards to this language, but also get into why this language matters so much to you personally, and how you came to know it, how you came to love it. For people listening to the podcast for the first time, A Language I Love Is works in the following format. After building up a little bit of a language profile, so that you feel completely caught up with what language we're talking about today, I have three questions for Francis that will allow us to get to know him and the Lithuanian language specifically through what Francis likes about it. Hopefully that will leave you feeling very enthused and informed all about Lithuanian and knowing a little bit more about Francis. So first off, let's set the scene. Francis, where can we find the speakers of this language today? So the current state of the Lithuanian language is that it's spoken by just over three million people in the Republic of Lithuania in East Central Europe. It's also spoken by a handful of people who can be found over the border in Belarus. Uh, And it's spoken by about a million people as a first language, as a a birth language, who are Lithuanian emigres and and expats. Uh, The largest Lithuanian expat community in the world can be found in Chicago in the US. But there are also very large Lithuanian communities in the UK, for example. And in fact, the city where I live, Peterborough, has the largest Lithuanian community in the UK, apart from London. So you have plenty of access to this language. I think you've said before that you hear it and you do speak Lithuanian pretty well. You can understand it pretty well. Let's dive into the history. Long story short, Lithuanian is of great interest for scholars and people who work in historical linguistics, people like me. So where does Lithuanian come from? What is its genealogy as a language? Could you unpack a little bit of the family tree to which Lithuanian belongs? Yes, so Lithuanian is a Baltic language, and the Baltic group of languages today includes just two languages, that's Lithuanian and Latvian, or possibly four, depending on how you want to classify Latgalian, which is a a dialect or an alternative language spoken in Latvia, and Samogitian, which is either a dialect or an alternative language, depending how you want to talk about it, spoken in Lithuania. But Either way, those are very, very closely related to Latvian and Lithuanian, respectively. But generally speaking, it's it's said to be those two languages. But they are the remnants of what was once a much larger language group. So 
around about 4,000 years ago, most linguists would say that Baltic and Slavic, or Proto-Baltic and Proto-Slavic, went their own ways. It's generally agreed now that Baltic and Slavic are related, but certainly quite distantly related. Uh, so this was something that happens during that great step migration of the Yamnaya people, or whoever it was, who was coming out of the Pontic steppe, uh, bringing those Indo-European languages, both, both East and West. And um, yeah, the Baltic languages split off pretty early on. They are very much in the Indo-European mainstream, I would say. Uh, so one of the reasons that linguists love Lithuanian is that it's got this wonderful sort of clarity to its to its Indo-European roots. It's, it's very clear to see how it relates to other Indo-European languages. But originally, um, Lithuanian was just one of, of several. The, the Baltic group originally, if we're talking about the early Middle Ages, it split into the Western Baltic languages and the Eastern Baltic languages. And the Western Baltic languages are now all extinct, but they included Prussian, which was spoken in what's now the Kaliningrad Oblast area of the Russian Federation, but until quite recently was, of course, Prussia. But when we hear the word Prussia, most of us will think Germans. Uh, but of course, the Prussians were originally a Baltic people. So they were living in that area that's kind of between Poland and Lithuania, as it is today. Uh, along with Prussians, you also had some related peoples. So you had the Sudovians and the Yotvingians. They had their own languages. I mean, there may have been even more, you know, all sorts of languages being spoken in the early Middle Ages. Those are the ones that survived to the point where a couple of words were written down. And then you've got all the East Baltic languages. So both Latvian and Lithuanian are East Baltic languages, but there were also languages like Salonian and Galindian, which are now entirely extinct. Galindian was spoken very, very far to the east compared to where Lithuanian is spoken today. So it was spoken in what's now Belarus, Russia. Uh, and in fact, the evidence of, of place names and particularly of, of hydronomy, so place names related to bodies of water, is, uh, is that it was spoken almost up to Moscow, where Moscow is today. And it may well be, in fact, that the Balts were a bit further to the east than they are today uh, in, the, in antiquity. But then moved to the coastal area round about the end of antiquity, that migrations period. That's a possibility. We don't know it for certain. But it may well be that the coastal area was inhabited by Finno-Ugric speaking peoples, because there does seem to be evidence of some kind of Finno-Ugric substrate. A substrate for your non-linguist listeners would mean evidence of a language that was maybe there before the existing language arrived that has left a few traces of vocabulary uh, in the in the language. So that's a that's a possibility, but we don't know that for certain. But yes, today it's confined just to Lithuania, and then you've got the other Baltic language up in Latvia. One point that I think we should emphasize is that so much of this story that you've just outlined there is prehistoric. So it's before the written record begins. All of these things like the Slavic connections of Lithuanians, these splits and these branching offs and these different groups and all the wider Indo-European context, this is something that linguists hypothesize to make sense of what we find today. And it's you know a good, secure hypothesis, I should stress that. All of that, I think, is surprising in light of Lithuanian's actual historical record. Unlike other Indo-European languages, things like Hittite or Sanskrit, where we have documents going back for millennia, 
Lithuanian is a pretty late arrival into the historical record. So what would you say in terms of the strictly the documented evidence, what's it like and when do we first start to see examples of the Lithuanian language? So we have a couple of words written down in, in Lithuanian in the, in the Middle Ages. During this period, Lithuania is at war with a group of, of Catholic crusading monks known as the Teutonic Knights. And the Teutonic Knights occupy the area which is uh, later Prussia. So they essentially occupy the Prussians. And you've got another group of crusading knights who are to the north in, in what's now Latvia and Estonia. And these knights write down chronicles and, and write down a few bits of information about the Lithuanians, but frustratingly little. And because they are enemies, they're not necessarily people whose language you would really want to know or need to know. And so it's not until long after Lithuania is converted to Christianity, which happens very late. In fact, Lithuania is the last nation to convert to Christianity in, in Europe in 1387. And so because the conversion happens very late, and Christianity is often associated with books, literature, writing, Lithuanian is a very late arrival on, on the scene of, of, of European languages in terms of the attestation of that language in written sources. And in fact, the first extended writing that we have in Lithuania are some psalm translations in about 1503. Uh, then in 1547, we get the publication of the first Lithuanian book. And this is, this is by Martinas Majvidas, and it is Katakismusa Prastijadei, that in modern Lithuanian, that would be Katakismusa Prastai Jodai. So um, a catechism in a, in a few short words was roughly how you would translate that. And it is a Lutheran catechism. Now, this is critical for the history of the Lithuanian language. The fact that Lithuania undergoes not just a conversion to Christianity, but not all that long after, it also undergoes the Reformation. And it undergoes, in fact, not one, but two Reformations. One of them is Lutheran and the other is Calvinist. And in order to explain that, you need to understand a bit of the geography of where Lithuanians are living. And in fact, Lithuanians at this point are living split between two different states. And one of those states, the most famous one, is the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. The Grand Duchy of Lithuania is founded in 1253 by a king called Mindaugas. Mindaugas is the most impressive, really, of these early Lithuanian leaders who gets himself anointed and crowned king, and in fact, nominally converts to Christianity, which then the Lithuanians backtrack on that, but that's a, a whole other story. But the Grand Duchy of Lithuania is this immensely successful medieval state. Uh, I would argue it's probably one of the most successful of all medieval states, certainly from the 13th century onwards. It expands massively to the south. So with a Lithuanian warrior elite who are Lithuanian speaking, it extends to embrace what's basically the whole of Belarus today, large swathes of what today is Ukraine, and also large parts of far Western Russia, places like Smolensk and Pskov and so forth. Uh, and it becomes this vast and very powerful policy. But there are also Lithuanian speakers who are living on the other side of the line with the Teutonic Knights, in a place called Lithuania Minor. And Lithuania Minor is this quite narrow strip of land that goes down from a place called Klaipeda on the coast, known as Memel or Memelberg to German speakers, and down to this kind of eastern sliver of Prussia. 
Um, so yeah, today it would be part of Kaliningrad Oblast. But you've also got Lithuanian speakers living in this area next to Prussian speakers. And so it all gets a little bit complicated because the linguistic history doesn't quite map onto the political boundaries. So yeah, um, it, it, essentially you've got Lutheran Reformation going on in the areas that are under the control of Prussia. And that's because the German Prussians, they've become Lutherans. But in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania itself, you've got one particular family, the Radzivill family, an ancient Lithuanian family. They have become linguistically Polonized. In other words, they've adopted Polish as their main vernacular, but they've also adopted Calvinism as their religion. And so they're, they're eager to spread that in Lithuania. And so you get catechisms being produced for the Lutherans in Lithuania, catechisms being produced to the Calvinists. But then the Jesuits come in and they want to roll back the tide of the Reformation. But in order to do that, they need to speak to the people in their own language. And so in the 16th century, you get this explosion of Lithuanian language writing, most of it of a Christian religious nature. That prompts my next question then, which is really about the external influences. You've mentioned that Lithuanian you know, is of such great interest to linguists because it's somehow and in some regards archaic or conservative, but it's still a real living language spoken by you know, real flesh and blood people. So what would you say has been the contribution of other languages to Lithuanian? You mentioned, for example, Polish. I believe at least that the stories of Lithuania and Poland are very much caught up in each other, thanks to the Grand Duchy of Lithuania that you mentioned. So I'm wondering what might be the the effects of that long-term contact with Poland and other other things as well. I mean, Lithuania was dominated by Russia, by the Russian Empire for a long time. Have languages of empire like Russian, like German, have they left a mark on modern-day Lithuanian? Yes. So the Grand Duchy of Lithuania itself was a multilinguistic polity. It always was. Uh, the Lithuanians themselves were always in a minority. So even in the early days of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, the major linguistic influence comes from Ruthenian, um, as we might want to call it, although it's, it's always difficult to find a word to call it, but Proto-Belarusian. Uh, so we could call it that, we could call it Ruthenian, we could call it the Rus language, uh, but it is essentially the East Slavic language that, that precedes what's now modern Belarusian and Russian and indeed Ukrainian. And that is by far the demographically dominant language within the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, because the Grand Duchy of Lithuania is massive. So it goes all the way from, you've got the, the Baltic coast in the north, all the way down to almost as far as the Black Sea. Um, and under Vitautas the Great in the 15th century, it reaches the Black Sea. He actually stands on the Black Sea and proclaims that you know, Lithuania has conquered the entire intermarium, that is to say, this huge area of land between the two the two seas. So that's the first influence, is the, is the Ruthenian influence. And in fact, that's the language of administration that the Lithuanians use. But there are these, uh, these accounts of how um, Vitautas and his cousin, Jogaila, who becomes king of Poland and becomes Władysław II Jagiełło, how they used to speak to one another in Lithuanian. So Lithuanian is still this kind of language of this warrior clique, this in-group uh, within the Grand Duchy at that stage. And it's also the language that's spoken by the majority of people in the territory of what today we would consider to be Lithuania. But then you've got the influence coming in from the Teutonic Knights. Now, I think the influence of the Teutonic Knights on Lithuanian is not that great because, of course, the Teutonic Knights never permanently conquer any bits of Lithuania. 
So that's one of the major differences between Lithuanian and Latvian. Latvian's got this quite strong Germanic influence on it. Lithuanian doesn't have that. So the big influence on Lithuania, as you've mentioned, is Polish. The historical background to this is that Jogaila, who I've already mentioned, becomes Grand Duke of Lithuania in around 1385. He is offered the, the hand in marriage of Jadwiga. Uh, Jadwiga at this point is the king of Poland. Uh, even though she's a woman, she's known as king. And she is the sole heiress of the, of the king of Poland. So she's got to marry someone and produce an heir if the, if the Polish royal line is to continue. And an arrangement is reached whereby the Poles say that Jagaila can become king of Poland, marry Jadwiga, but he's got to convert to Christianity. Poland being then as now a very Catholic country, there's no way they're going to accept a, a pagan king. And not only has he got to convert to Christianity, he's got to convert his native country to Christianity too. And so he goes back to Vilnius and he um, uh, officially baptizes the Lithuanian people. I say officially because it doesn't really quite work like that. But again, that's, a, that's another story. But as a result of that, this polonizing influence is introduced to Lithuania from the top down. So it begins with Jogaila himself. He adopts this Polish name. Uh, his family, the, the Jogailids, become the Jagiellonians, one of the great dynasties of late medieval Europe. And the, other, the rest of the Lithuanian nobility follow suit. They all want to be seen as culturally sophisticated. So they start speaking Polish. They start adopting Polish names. So, you know, today, a lot of the families that we would now think of as being great Polish families actually have Lithuanian roots. So the Radzivils would be an example, the, the, the Sapiejas, the Gedroiches, whose most famous representative is Mel Gedroich, who is in fact descended from Lithuanian princes. But these, these are people who spoke Polish uh, after this point, and yet they retain their Lithuanian identity. So they might have carried on speaking Lithuanian almost as a, as a private um, domestic language for, for you know, several generations after this. And the influence of Polish on Lithuanian is quite significant. It affects the way that Lithuanian is written. It affects the vocabulary. And then you also mentioned the influence of Russian. Now, the, the Russian occupation of Lithuania is the most traumatizing aspect of Lithuanian history in recent centuries. And it begins in 1795. That's when the, the Grand Duchy of Lithuania is basically uh, divided up between powers and Russia takes most of it. And Lithuania is incorporated into the Russian Empire. That continues until after the First World War in 1918, when Lithuania finally manages to break free from the Russian Empire for a brief period until 1940, when the Soviet Union invades and occupies Lithuania until 1991. So the influence of that is, is vast. It's a history of, of, of oppression and marginalization and attempts to stamp out the Lithuanian language, attempts to Russify Lithuania. And these, are, these things are still very, very raw in contemporary Lithuanian culture. So yeah, what I'd say about that is that the, the Russians were essentially unsuccessful. So while there is a small Russian-speaking minority in Lithuania, it's quite a small minority compared to uh, Latvia and Estonia, for example, which have, have rather larger Russian-speaking minorities. So yeah, those, those would be some of the major influences. 
I feel at this point I should make a reference as well to episode 7 of this podcast with uh, Johanna Laxol, who talked about Estonian. Estonian, in terms of its ancestry, is a very, very different language to Lithuanian, but nonetheless, because it is a language of that Baltic region, there's a tremendous amount of shared history. A lot of what you're saying here is reminiscent about what Johanna said about uh, Estonian, so this is very interesting. Could you give a brief comment, though, during all of that history that you've just outlined, how is Lithuanian being written down? What does it look like in terms of its writing system? Yeah, well, this is a fascinating story, and it requires Lithuanians to become literate in the first place, of course. And the, the first kind of efforts to convert the Lithuanians to Christianity are so shambolic that actually Yagaila, who is the, the, the king who's, who's trying to convert his people to, to Christianity for the first time, and doesn't have anyone else to speak the language. He, he speaks Polish at this point. So when he goes to Vilnius in 1387, he has to translate for the Polish priests. The king himself has to do it and explain the Christian faith to Lithuanians. And this is really a sign of things to come. And it's the reason why Lithuania remains deeply, deeply pagan, you know, well into the 18th century, is because they can't find enough preachers who are, are trained to speak the Lithuanian language. And so there's this attempt to sort of preach to people in Polish, and of course, they don't understand what's going on. But uh, in, in fact, one of the key figures in changing this is an Englishman, and, and he's probably the, the person I find most interesting in the whole history of the Lithuanian language, probably because he is an Englishman. And he's Adam Brook, and he arrives in Lithuania in about 1578. And this is the year that the, the Jesuit Academy is founded in Vilnius. And that goes on to become Vilnius University, still uh, Lithuania's most important university. And Adam Brook uh, has trained at Oxford, joined the Jesuit order, um, turns up and discovers that a lot of the Jesuits are, are Poles. They're not really interested in uh, bringing Christianity to the Lithuanian peasantry. And he's shocked by this. And I think because he's a foreigner, because he's coming into this without the cultural baggage of thinking the Lithuanian language is somehow inferior to the Polish language. I think, you know, honestly, what was the view that many of these Polish Jesuits had? He says, no, no, we need to, you know, have a printing press. We need to start printing books because, look, the Calvinists, they're printing their books. We need to get on top of this, guys. And so, um, yeah, Adam Brook is responsible for setting up these, these Catholic printing presses, which result in the printing of more Catholic books. Yeah, they have to find an orthography for Lithuania. Now, Lithuanian has not been written down very much. And because these orthographies are associated with particular presses and cities where books were being printed, they tend to be different. So um, you, you've got three major presses. One is in Königsberg, uh, today's Kaliningrad, which is the capital of, of Prussia, German Prussia. So that's a Lutheran city. And they use an orthography that tends to be more influenced by German conventions. And then you've got the, the castle press in Vilnius Castle. That's run by the Radzivill family. And that is a Protestant printing press. And then you've got the Jesuit printing press in Vilnius University, which is Adam Brooks Press. And they are using what's broadly similar orthography, but it's derived from Polish orthography. And not only that, but you tend to get this, this form of Lithuanian that's printed, which, which includes quite a lot of Polish words, partly because the Lithuanians didn't necessarily have words that could express theological concepts. And so they tend to be kind of borrowed in from Polish. And there's a, a remarkable book that comes out in 1753. And this is a book by a guy called Nikolaus Olnyszewiskus. 
And this is called Broma Adverti in Viachasti. The basic idea of this book is it's, yeah, it's a kind of collection of devotional stories, almost like religious fairy tales that are aimed at the Lithuanian peasantry. But it's notorious in Lithuania because it mixes in the Lithuanian, Polish, Latin. It's written in almost a kind of macaronic dialect. But it seems that that was understood by the Lithuanian peasantry. But it's almost a, a book against which modern Lithuanian came to define itself. So when, when there is a revival of the language at the end of the 19th century, stuff like this is really frowned upon and looked down on as being this kind of yeah, debased form of the language. But for me as a historian, I'm more interested in what people were actually speaking. You know, what, what was the language that you needed to go and talk to people in? If you were a Jesuit or Bernadine missionary heading into the depths of the forest in Lithuania in the middle of the 18th century to tell people to stop worshipping trees, what language did you actually need to use to talk to these people? And I think that that's something which is quite hard to recover sometimes, what the, yeah, what the real language was. The Lithuanian language, by the 17th century, even by the 16th century, it's very much a peasant language. So it's something which is viewed as, uh, yeah, not, not an elite language, something which shouldn't really be present amongst learned people. Although there is this um, wonderful example when the, when, when the king turns up, this is Sigismund III, when he turns up in Vilnius, this collection of poems is presented to him by the scholars of Vilnius University, reflecting their languages. And one of the languages is, is Lithuanian, although one of the languages is also English, because there were quite a lot of English and Scots students there, too. It's a rather fraught question, this, yeah, what, what, what was the orthography and how should Lithuanian be written down? So for the first of my three questions that make up the format of this whole podcast, I'd like to explore, Francis, what the Lithuanian language means to you. You make no secret of the fact that you're not a native speaker of Lithuanian. This is something that you've come to, I believe, as an adult. So could you just tell us, how did you come to love Lithuanian and know so much about it? Well, I actually came to Lithuanian as a teenager. I have been studying the Lithuanian language on and off for, for now for 25 years. I'm still not very good at actually speaking Lithuanian. <laughs> um, I, I would say that my reading ability is is, is much better than, than my speaking ability. And, and even there, I, it's, it's a very challenging language. But it's a language that fascinates me, obviously, because of the area that I work on. Originally, it was because there was a Lithuanian student in my school. So I was introduced to the Lithuanian language uh, then. And I also, at one point, I belonged to a religious community where a lot of the members were Lithuanian. And so I kept coming into contact with Lithuanians. And wherever I went, I seemed to meet Lithuanians. And this was before um, Lithuania joined the European Union. So there weren't that many Lithuanians in, in Britain at that time. But um, yeah, I went to Lithuania. I spent some time there when I was at university. Uh, and it, it, became very, it became very important to me. Thereafter, there were periods when I kind of, you know, didn't, didn't have so much interest in it. But I think I really came back to Lithuanian when I started to get really interested as a historian in questions about the, the late survival of paganism in, in various corners of Europe. And that's a, a perennial theme of my, of my scholarship, if anybody knows my, my books. I suppose I came to the realization 
this would be in the late 2010s, that I was kind of uniquely placed to bring this history to a wider audience because of my knowledge of the Lithuanian language, which might not have been a very great knowledge, but something which I, I find about languages is that it goes a long way to have a little knowledge which takes away the fear that comes with a completely unknown language. And I understand what that is. You know, I, whenever I encounter anything in, in Estonian, I, I feel like this. Um, you know, there are certain languages which are just terrifying to the uninitiated. And because I'd had this kind of initiation into Lithuanian, it was something where I felt, you know, I could pick it up again without too much difficulty. And yeah, I, I, I felt that I was able to kind of engage with the secondary sources in Lithuanian and bring this history to an English-speaking audience. But yes, I have no family connections with Lithuania, which people are often surprised why I'm so interested in this language, given that I don't have any, any, any Lithuanian family. But I, I just find it an absolutely fascinating language, a beautiful language, and a language that has a great deal of depth. And also, to me as a Latinist, um, because I, I am a, a translator of la early modern and, and medieval Latin, it, it has a certain appeal as a an inflected language uh, with a with a complex grammar, which uh, I think, yeah, certainly when I first encountered Lithuanian, I was very, very into my Latin and my Greek. And it really appealed to me that, for example, you can write hexameters <laughs> in Lithuanian. It's one of the languages that you can write hexameters in. So, yeah, those are some of the reasons why I love Lithuanian. Just one more question about your personal experience with Lithuanian. We've touched on already that Lithuanian has this kind of special prestige, this aura among historical linguists for its many archaisms, right? Which are the product of its Indo-European background. So, for example, the word for a son, uh, you know, a male child is a sunus, daughter is dukra, a tooth is a dantis. These are recognisable if you know what you're looking for. I'm just wondering, in the process of learning Lithuanian, were these connections as a native English speaker useful? I wouldn't say that they were particularly useful for me as a native English speaker, but I think as a, as a Latinist um, and as someone who had studied Greek, it was very obvious to me that we were dealing with an almost stereotypically Indo-European language <laughs> in the sense that when you look at Lithuanian, it does seem to have this kind of purely Indo-European origins, although that's partly an illusion because there are words in there which which are arguably from a Finno-Ugric substrate. There are borrowings from East Slavic. I mean, a, a very obvious one would be the word kniga, a word that comes in from Ruthenian because books are only being written down by people who are writing in East Slavic. So, you know, it, it makes sense. And, you know, there are there are these borrowings. But broadly speaking, it's very, very recognizable. And it, you, you can recognize connections with Latin, with Greek, with Welsh, with Irish, not so much with um, with the Germanic languages and with English. So I think that, yeah, English is probably less helpful. And I think it's these languages which, you know, I hesitate to use the word conservative because I know it's controversial among linguists to say this, but I think, yeah, the connections that you see with, with Latin, I find particularly interesting. That brings us very nicely to the second question which I want to pose to you today, which is very simply, what is something that you love about Lithuanian? I'm afraid I have to limit you to one feature or one facet of this language's history, but what is something that you really like and that you want to share with us all today? 
Well, I'm going to be quite cheeky here and say something which is a feature of the way the language has been studied rather than a feature of the language, a grammatical or, or, or lexical feature of the language. I love the crazy theories when it comes to, to Lithuanian. Lithuanian, because I think it, it, it's not just in modern times that it's attracted a great deal of, of attention from linguists. This goes way back. So as early as the 16th century, you've got people encountering Lithuanian and noticing how different it is from the other languages in the region, apart from Latvian, of course. Clearly not a Slavic language, clearly not a Germanic language. So what is this language? How did it get here? And I think that you, you early on get all sorts of wild ideas being suggested. And one of my favorites is the idea that Lithuanian is actually a Romance language and is actually a form of Latin. And this is hugely culturally important in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania. And the reason for this is that the, the Lithuanians want a kind of history for themselves as a, a Roman people. You know, in the same way that you've got everybody going around claiming to be descended from Trojans, everybody wants to be descended from Romans. And the Lithuanians in the 16th century are on the up. Grand Duchy of Lithuania is expanding, becoming this immensely powerful polity and also joined to Poland within the, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And the Poles have got this whole thing going on where, you know, we're Sarmatians, uh, you know, we're these kind of ancient Eurasian people. And the Lithuanians want something like this. They want a backstory. And so they come up with this backstory of saying that, in fact, a, a group of Roman soldiers who are part of Julius Caesar's expedition to Britain got shipwrecked in a storm along with their British slaves. And that Lithuanian developed as a combination of Latin, British, so like Proto-Welsh, and the language of the Goths that was being spoken in the Baltic region at the time, and all this got mixed together, and that in fact Lithuania came from Litalia, Italia, and eventually became corrupted to Lithuania. And this becomes massively important as a theory to the point that Lithuanians literally believe for centuries that Latin is the classical form of Lithuanian and therefore they should revive Latin as the spoken language of Lithuania and should write the Latin language as their literary language. And it's not until the late 18th century that Lithuanians move away from this idea. So that's that's a crazy theory, but there's also other crazy theories. So a guy called Jan Potocki, famous Polish writer, he suggests in the early 19th century that Lithuanian is Celtic. Now, this is not completely without classical authority, because Tacitus had said in the Annals that the language that's spoken by the Aestii, who are these Baltic people on the eastern side of the Baltic, we can't be more precise than that, is like that of the Britons. So the idea that, in fact, there is a connection with Irish and with Welsh, which, again, if you look at the languages, if you look at Old Irish next to Lithuanian, there's so many Indo-European connections there that you can see where that could come from. And the same way with, with Latin and with Lithuanian. So you've got a word like ugnis, ignis, fire. You know, en endless connections, which the, the so-called Vilnius Latinizers are constantly pointing out. And so, yeah, those, those, are some of the, those are some of the crazier theories. And I think a more recent crazy theory that you'll hear, or not so much a theory, but a kind of urban legend, is that Lithuanian is mutually comprehensible with Sanskrit. <laughs> And this this became okay. quite popular in the, in the in the 1990s. And in fact, I was told this story when I first encountered Lithuania. It's complete nonsense, of course. You know, yes, there are striking 
you know, lexical similarities with, with Sanskrit as there are with other Indo-European languages. But yes, I think this, the closeness of this was vastly exaggerated. And the idea that Lithuanian represents some kind of utterly pure form of, of Indo-European, or even you'll get Lithuanians sometimes claiming that it is the original Indo-European language from which every other Indo-European language evolved. It is proto-Indo-European. Now, obviously, you know, that, that's every bit as silly as saying that Lithuanian is, is Latin. But it's interesting how these kind of linguistic myth arise. But it looks like we are now kind of getting more sort of certainty, uh, you know, through various kind of mathematical analyses that have been conducted about the relationship between Proto-Baltic, Proto-Slavic, the likely date at which these kind of splits might have occurred. So I think the theories are getting less crazy and more grounded in, in research methodologies. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. And yes, you say crazy, but they are built all on a bedrock of solid connections, right? There is there's a reason for why people are coming up with these theories. Spotting these connections across languages, that's the basis of my field. That's comparative linguistics. It's just, unfortunately, in these cases, they're adding two and two together and getting, you know, 67. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's fascinating. And uh, I think, personally, all of these stories should be included within the story of comparative linguistics. These are great examples of early, we could dare say, proto-comparative linguistics leading to fantastic and, let's say, socially, politically motivated conclusions. Well, on that note, concerning early attempts to make sense of the Lithuanian language and where it comes from, I have to unfortunately move you on to the third and final question of the whole show, which is, what is something that you would like the audience listening to know about when it comes to Lithuanian? Well, I think what I'd like people to understand who, ha who have no awareness of, of the Lithuanian language and, and Lithuania is that it might seem that the Lithuanian language is a tiny and insignificant European language of a very small country. But it has this extraordinary history that extends well beyond the, the bounds of, of what is today Lithuania. It's a hugely important language to the whole region of East Central Europe. You know, when you consider that you've got the, the Jagiellonian dynasty, who are this, this Lithuanian-speaking dynasty of the Grand Dukes of Lithuania, who end up not only ruling Poland, but also Croatia and Hungary, um, and governing this vast territory. So, yeah, it's got this, it's got this hugely important history. And I, I think also for people to be aware that Lithuanian is very much a kind of trophy language amongst linguists. Uh, you know, it's it's one that... You know, most linguists with an interest in Indo-European languages will want to know some Lithuanian. And that's less to do with the, you know, the historical significance of the Grand Duchy of Lithuania or anything like that, but more to do with the prestige that's attached to Lithuanian as this supposedly very conservative and highly inflected uh, Indo-European language. And I think that it is one of the kind of type languages of the Indo-European supergroup, you know, in the sense that if you want to understand Indo-European, there are certain languages that you're going to select from each one of the of the branches as a, as type languages. So yeah, it's it's got that significance to it. So I'd say yeah, it's it's don't assume that it's some tiny obscure language that you know only a few people speak. It is it's got this it's got this special significance. 
a number of other countries and other languages come to mind that have had similar fates in the modern era. You know, the borders of the modern country, it may look nice and neatly confined to a little bit of geography, but it betrays a huge amount of history and influence. So, yeah, Lithuanian, a prime example of don't just go off the modern status quo. Fantastic. Great point to end in, and I think a really kind of corrective in the way that we may think about the languages in the countries of Europe. Excellent. Well, now I think I simply have to say thank you very much, Francis. Do you have any tips for people who may want to get to know your research, especially into your work with you know, religion, uh, and also people who may want to continue their education into the history of the Lithuanian language? Yeah, so I have a book which came out in 2022, which is called uh, Pagans in the Early Modern Baltic. Uh, and that's a, a translation of sources relating to uh, the late survival of, of paganism in Lithuania. And language is, is a, an important part of that, as I've already mentioned, that because people didn't uh, know the Lithuanian language, they weren't able to bring Christianity to, to the Lithuanians. And uh, I'm, I've got a book coming out next year uh, with Arc Humanities Press, who are also the publishers of Pagans in the Early Modern Baltic. Uh, and that is an edition of three Lithuanian epic poems, all of which were written in Latin because of that movement, which I, I mentioned earlier, the Vilnius Latinizers, who believed that by writing in Latin, they were in fact writing in the classical form of the Lithuanian language. So it's actually hugely important to understand these poems if we want to understand Lithuanian identity and the development of Lithuanian identity. So that's called Poetry and Nation Building in the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, Three Early Modern Latin Epics. That will be coming out sometime in 2024. And there are other things that I'm currently working on also relating to Lithuania and the Baltic. Uh, if you want a, a good history of the Lithuanian language, there is a, a wonderful book by Sigmas Sinkevichus, which came out in 1998, but I think is still in print, and that's just called A History of the Lithuanian Language. And so that's the best uh, single introduction, I think, to, to the whole history of the Lithuanian language, and which is available in English. I think I'm going to go and buy that. You've very successfully enthused me personally, and I think everyone listening about the amazing history that we're just not aware of in Western Europe. So wonderful. Great point to end on. Uh, Francis, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, well, till the next time, I hope. Thank you very much. For this episode's final fun fact, I'd like to explore a link between Lithuanian and English, and a word family that unites a lot of Northern Europe. The usual Lithuanian expression for thank you is archu, but you can also use the verb for to thank, dziekoti. This is a borrowing from the Slavic language family, in which we find similar verbs for to thank, like Ukrainian dziakowiete, Czech dziekovat, and Polish dziękować. That nasal sound in the first syllable of the Polish word hints at their common origin in the Old High German verb dankorn, hence modern German danken and dankeschön. Not too surprisingly, the German is related to English's own word, thank. Sound changes may have obscured the connections between English and Lithuanian, but all these languages are united in thanking. That's everything for another episode of A Language I Love Is. If you've enjoyed this episode, please give the show a rating and recommend it widely to share the linguistic love. Thanks must go to my guest today, Francis, and to you, dear listener, for listening. Till the next time then, bye-bye.